0: Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sexual violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: 52-year-old Steven Zelich glanced at the clock perched on the nightstand. The morning was passing quickly, and it was almost time to check out of the hotel. He had to act
0: fast. Stephen stepped closer to the queen-size bed where 37-year-old Laura Simonson knelt before him. She was naked, blindfolded, and her hands were tied behind her back. Stephen let out a long breath as he took her in. The sight of her, powerless, was utterly intoxicating.
1: But he didn't have time to waste. He stretched the length of rope between his hands and looped it around Laura's neck. Then he started to tighten it, inch by inch, slowly restricting her oxygen.
0: Stephen panted in excitement. This was his favorite part. She couldn't escape now, even if she wanted to. She belonged entirely to him.
1: I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're concluding the story of Stephen Selich, the Milwaukee suitcase murderer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson.
0: Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Last time, we examined how former police officer Steven Selich nursed a growing desire to control and overpower women. We also detailed how he lured his first victim to meet him in person before he squeezed the life from her body.
0: Today, we'll discuss the aftermath of Steven's first kill, as well as the grim details of Steven's second murder. We'll also explore how investigators built their case against him thanks to the dedicated efforts of the victim's friends and family. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
1: In August of 2012, 50-year-old Steven Zelich enticed 19-year-old Jenny Gomez to visit him in Wisconsin. When she arrived, he took her to a hotel room in Kenosha County, where they spent the weekend conducting BDSM sessions. But hours before they were due to check out, he looped a piece of rope around her neck.
0: For his entire life, Stephen had been filled with the desire to dominate women. Now, with Jenny's life in his hands, he had complete control.
1: Stephen began a process called breath play, a sexual activity that involves the restriction of oxygen. He alternated between tightening and loosening the noose around Jenny's neck, cutting off her airway for longer and longer periods of time. Until finally, he stopped loosening it altogether and Jenny's lifeless form keeled over onto the floor.
0: Stephen could have called for help right then and there. He could have even performed CPR since he'd received training during his years as a police officer. Instead, he just emptied out Jenny's suitcase and stuffed her corpse inside.
1: Then he retrieved a luggage cart and stacked several bags on top of each other. He wheeled the cart outside and loaded the suitcases into his trunk.
0: Stephen left the hotel and drove to his apartment in West Allis, Wisconsin. There, he brought the suitcase inside and began to remove everything from his refrigerator, all of the food, the shelves, and the drawers.
1: Then he took Jenny's naked and bound body out of her suitcase and put her inside the cold, dark fridge.
0: It was a gruesome reminder of his first kill, a prized possession he wasn't willing to part with, so much so that over the next year, He left her right there in his fridge just to keep her close.
1: But as Jenny's body began to decompose before him, Stephen realized that merely her presence wasn't enough. He needed to relive the thrill that he'd felt when he had total control. So he returned to various BDSM websites, searching for someone new, someone he could easily manipulate.
0: He seemed to have an instinct for singling out the most vulnerable. Perhaps this was because he knew what it felt like to be lonely. Throughout his life, Steven had very few friends or social connections. As a result, it's likely that he knew how to identify with women who were also feeling alone.
1: He knew exactly what to say to lower their guards and made sweeping statements he knew he couldn't or wouldn't keep. He promised to take care of them for the rest of their lives giving them not only companionship, but an escape from their problems and responsibilities.
0: And by vowing to become their master, he wasn't just indulging their fetish, he was building himself up as someone these women could trust with their lives.
1: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. As a note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
0: Thanks, Greg. According to author Meredith Jean Scannell, online dating comes with many risks. In her 2019 study published in the Building Healthy Academic Communities Journal, Scannell explored how predators exploit the internet to entice potential victims. She writes, Sexual predators can create an anonymous profile and engage with potential victims under false pretenses. Some perpetrators will try to make their profiles more desirable and falsify their appearance, age, or employment in efforts to appear to be a better dating candidate to attract others. Over time, online relationships develop with emotional attachment and trust, thereby increasing vulnerability.
1: For all Stephen's talk about enslavement and domination, his Mr. Handcuffs profile picture made him look disarming, harmless, In his photo, one that had been taken when he was years younger, he seemed relaxed. He sat casually on a couch, sporting an earnest smile. He looked trustworthy enough. At least, some women must have thought so. In particular, the vulnerable women Stephen targeted.
0: According to psychologist Jeff Gardier, people with low self-esteem and self-perception issues may be particularly susceptible to online lies. In a 2013 interview, Dr. Gardier remarked that these victims, quote, don't think as much of themselves as maybe they should, and they're perhaps trying to find redemption in this dream person.
1: It's possible that's exactly what Stephen's next target hoped to find in him.
0: In the fall of 2013, Stephen scoured a BDSM website called CallerMe.com and connected with a woman named Laura Simonson. Laura was a 37-year-old mother from Farmington, Minnesota. When she met Stephen online, she was going through a particularly difficult period in her life.
1: According to Laura's father, she had lived with mental health issues since adolescence. However, her struggles were compounded by a number of personal problems in adulthood.
0: In the late 2000s, after several rocky years of marriage, she divorced her husband, Troy. She lost custody of their seven children and stayed with her mother for a brief period. But the greatest tragedy of Laura's life occurred in the summer of 2013. That June, her 13-year-old daughter, Alyssa, died suddenly.
1: Laura was devastated. In those months of grief, she withdrew from her family and began to spend more and more time online. She developed a fascination with BDSM and found herself chatting with complete strangers who shared similar interests. It's likely she saw this type of activity as an outlet for, or an escape from, what seemed to be a lingering depression.
0: As unusual as it might seem, there's science to back up this kind of thinking. According to psychologist Brad Sagarin, BDSM play can actually alter a person's consciousness by putting them in a state of euphoria, similar to one experienced by endurance runners artists and people under hypnosis in a 2016 study dr sagarin and a team of researchers studied seven couples who engaged in bdsm play they discovered that these participants experienced lower levels of stress following bdsm activities their subjects also reported a better mood and an increase in arousal Sagarin and his fellow researchers suggested that these changes may be caused by a reduction in the brain's prefrontal cortex activity. When people partake in BDSM activity, their overall blood flow to this region appears to slow down in order to focus on sensory and perceptual processes, as well as other basic needs. Or as Sagarin describes it, the rest of the world drops away and someone is completely focused on what they're doing considering the tragic loss of her daughter. It's possible that BDSM play helped Laura Simonson escape the tremendous grief weighing down on her. As a result, she may have found the altered mental state she gleaned from BDSM activity immensely appealing.
1: Whatever the reason for her interest, Laura began frequenting BDSM websites like collarme.com. And by the fall of 2013, she connected with Steven Zelich.
0: Stephen expressed his desire to enter a master-slave relationship. Just like he told Jenny, he reportedly said he wanted someone he could keep in permanent confinement with, quote, no expectation of release.
1: Laura was drawn to his proposal, and the two began making plans to start a new life together. But first, Stephen had a few stipulations. He sent Laura a list of tasks to complete before they met.
0: He asked her to remove all her body hair and paint her nails his favorite shade of pink. He also told her she should sell all of her belongings, liquidate all of her property, and delete all her social media profiles. He wanted her to erase all traces of her former existence.
1: Laura agreed to everything. She knew Stephen desired an obedient slave, and she wanted to prove she could be that for him. At one point, she asked him if it was really possible for her to disappear, to escape her life completely. Stephen assured her that she could. He would make sure of it.
0: On the morning of November 2nd, 2013, Laura left a note for her mother. It read, I'm sorry I'm this way. I'm no good for the kids either. The best thing I can do is to stay away. I'm going to find a place to go so no one has to deal with me again. I love you all. And always will. Then
1: she drove her van to her mother's house and parked it on the street. Laura hadn't been able to find a buyer for her vehicle, so she abandoned it. From there, she walked a few blocks to a nearby elementary school.
0: Just as she was approaching the school, Stephen's white Saturn pulled to the side of the road. Laura hurried to his car, eager to meet the man who had promised her a new beginning.
1: She climbed inside and the two headed southeast, towards Stephen's apartment in West Dallas, Wisconsin. But Stephen had no intention of bringing Laura home to stay with him forever. He wasn't even thinking past the weekend.
0: Shortly after they left Farmington, he told Laura that the five-hour journey was too long to make in one day. About an hour into the drive, he suggested they pull off the highway and stay at a hotel.
1: A little after noon, the pair arrived at the Microtel Inn and Suites in Rochester, Minnesota. Laura checked in, paying cash for the room. Meanwhile, Stephen hung back, keeping an eye on her while she filled out the paperwork.
0: While they didn't call attention to themselves, they still stood out to the hotel's front desk manager, Christy Bodanov. According to Christy, Laura appeared to be anguished. She didn't smile much, and her eyes were filled with worry.
1: Christy sensed that Laura was troubled. But she never imagined that she'd be the last person to see her
0: alive. Coming up, Stephen's sadistic urges turn deadly once again. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from Parcast Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. Now, back to the story.
1: On November 2nd, 2013, 37-year-old Laura Simonson checked into a hotel about an hour away from her hometown in Farmington, Minnesota. She was there with 52-year-old Stephen Selich, a man she'd met on a BDSM website. He convinced her to leave her whole life behind and come live with him indefinitely in Wisconsin as his slave.
0: But Stephen was lying to Laura. He wasn't planning to bring her to his home in West Allis at all. If Laura moved in with him, she would be sure to find the body of 19-year-old Jenny Gomez hidden inside his refrigerator. He couldn't let that happen.
1: Perhaps Jenny was on his mind as he and Laura checked into the Rochester Hotel. Stephen certainly seemed intent on recreating the same deadly encounter from the previous year.
0: Over the next 24 hours, Stephen acted out his every fantasy on Laura. He had her strip naked, place a ball gag in her mouth, handcuffed her wrists behind her back, taped her ankles together, and blindfolded her.
1: By Sunday morning, he wanted to assert even more control and began the act of breath play or the restriction of oxygen for erotic pleasure. As Laura knelt on the bed, Stephen wrapped his hands around her neck and used his fingers to pinch her nostrils shut. But he didn't stop there.
0: He retrieved some rope and looped it around her neck, increasing the pressure as he tightened it. Eventually, Laura keeled over and fell off the bed.
1: But when Stephen picked her up from the floor, he realized that she was dead. He had just killed his second victim.
0: According to Stephen, he was immediately stricken with panic. Memories of Jenny flooded into his head, and he knew exactly what to do next.
1: Just as he'd done during his first murder, Stephen emptied Laura's suitcase and placed her naked body inside. She still had the ball gag in her mouth and a rope around her neck. Then he went downstairs and grabbed a luggage cart.
0: Stephen stacked the bags on the cart, then brought everything downstairs to his car. He loaded the suitcase into his trunk and headed home.
1: And just as before, he made no attempt to dump Laura's body. He had plans to keep the remains. These corpses were his prized possessions, and he had no intention of letting go of these priceless trophies.
0: Sociologist Nicole L. Mott discusses the behavior of trophy-taking in The Encyclopedia of Murder and Violent Crime. In her entry, Mott wrote that a trophy is in essence a souvenir. In the context of violent behavior or murder, keeping a part of the victim as a trophy represents power over that individual. When the offender keeps this kind of souvenir, it serves as a way to preserve the memory of the victim and the experience of his or her death. By taking possession over Laura's body, Stephen exerted complete control over her, even after her death. But maintaining such a trophy was no easy task.
1: For starters, Stephen had nowhere to store the corpse. There was no more room left in his refrigerator. So he decided to keep her remains inside the suitcase and leave it in the trunk of his car. Fortunately for Stephen, the frigid Wisconsin winters were cold enough to keep the body from decomposing too quickly. At least for now.
0: As long as nobody discovered the two corpses, Stephen knew he was safe after all, he had avoided getting caught after his first murder for more than a year, but Steven soon learned that he couldn't make everything in life go his way.
1: Stephen had found something of a perfect victim in Jenny Gomez. She had grown up in the foster care system and had few family ties. When she disappeared, nobody reported her missing. Her friends assumed she had wanted a fresh start, that she began a new life somewhere else.
0: However, Laura Simonson was different. She had a mother, a sister, children, friends, and even an ex-husband who deeply missed her. They didn't ignore her disappearance.
1: When Laura's family found her goodbye letter in November of 2013, they assumed that the grieving mother just needed some space. It wasn't uncommon for Laura to disappear for a few days when she was feeling overwhelmed. And they assumed that she was off visiting a friend, But as days turned into weeks, they grew more and more concerned.
0: When it looked like Laura might miss Thanksgiving, her mother and sister knew something was wrong. Laura would never miss the holidays with her children, so they called the Farmington Police Department to report her missing.
1: Around November 25th, Detective Sergeant Lee Hollitz paid Laura's family a visit. At first glance, the case didn't seem like a police matter. Laura was an adult, free to go where she pleased, and given the note she'd left behind, it appeared that she'd left voluntarily. But while Detective Hollitz was there, he asked to search the van Laura had left in front of her mother's house.
0: Inside the vehicle, he found Laura's cell phone and bank card, which gave him pause. Surely if Laura were really visiting a friend, she would have taken her phone and a way to access her money. Hollitz sensed something was wrong and decided to pursue an investigation.
1: Authorities began by questioning Laura's ex-husband, Troy. Laura had previously leveled accusations of domestic violence against him during their turbulent marriage. If Laura had been harmed, police believed that Troy was the most likely suspect. They had no reason to guess that the real culprit was someone Laura barely knew, someone who lived more than 300 miles away.
0: But there was another man, a friend of Laura's named Jeff, who had information the police didn't. Laura and Jeff were extremely close, and she'd confided in him about her online activities. She even trusted him with her account usernames and passwords.
1: When Jeff learned of her disappearance, he became particularly worried. He logged into Laura's social media profiles, including the site, CollarMe.com, and combed through her messages, searching for any bit of information that could help the investigation along.
0: His diligence paid off, Jeff discovered dozens of communications between Laura and Steven's handle, Mr. Handcuffs. Crucially, the messages included plans for Laura to move in with him and become his slave.
1: When Detective Hollitz read these messages, he was convinced that Laura was in real danger. He suspected that she was being held captive by an abuser who had taken advantage of her vulnerable position. Most importantly, he now knew that she may have traveled out of state to meet this man.
0: Detective Hollitz released an all-points bulletin that went out to nearby law enforcement agencies, hospitals, and hotels, notifying them of Laura's disappearance. Two days later, he received a call.
1: Christy Bodinoff, the front desk manager at the Mike Hotel Inn and Suites in Rochester, had seen the flyer. She recognized Laura's picture and promptly called in.
0: Christy recalled the date that Laura had checked in and that she was accompanied by a man who she described as gruff. Unfortunately, Christy didn't have any information on who the man was, as he hadn't filled out any paperwork.
1: To make matters more difficult, the hotel security footage from that day was lost. However, the hotel did have footage from the following day, the day that Stephen Selich checked out.
0: When Detective Hollitz reviewed the footage, he didn't see Laura, but he did see a man leaving the hotel with a cart full of luggage. Sadly, police couldn't ID Steven from the security footage and the case began to slow.
1: Luckily, Laura's friends and family continued to investigate new leads on their own, especially her friend Jeff. Once he discovered the username Mr. Handcuffs, Jeff spent hours searching the internet for any hints about this person's identity
0: jeff found the same username on other bdsm websites including one that listed an email address with some careful internet sleuthing he finally connected the email account to 52 year old steven zelich
1: once again jeff passed this information to farmington authorities but when detective Hollitz ran a search on Stephen, he realized they weren't dealing with a regular citizen Stephen was a former police officer who had a history of exploiting his position of power for his own pleasure.
0: Hollitz reached out to the West Allis Police Department, and they agreed to assist in the Farmington investigation. So in January of 2014, a few officers from the West Allis PD went to Stephen's apartment.
1: Stephen recognized one of the officers immediately and allowed just that one to come inside. The officer did a cursory search of the apartment to see if Laura was there, but found no sign of her. The apartment was noticeably dirty with an obvious mold infestation. It's possible that this helped disguise any odor emanating from the two corpses Stephen had stored on his property.
0: Stephen was friendly and cooperative as the officer questioned him. He calmly admitted to chatting with Laura online, but said that he'd never met her in person. He also claimed to know nothing about her disappearance. So, the West Dallas police officers were forced to leave empty-handed. Without any direct evidence linking Stephen to Laura's disappearance, there wasn't enough to make an arrest.
1: Even still, authorities weren't ready to stop their investigation. In February of 2014, the FBI offered to help with the case. Shortly after, an FBI agent paid a visit to Stephen's apartment.
0: The agent grilled Stephen about his relationship with Laura, but Stephen feigned innocence and still insisted that he knew nothing about her whereabouts. To prove his case, he readily agreed to give a sample of his DNA. It's
1: likely that Stephen felt the DNA was a dead end for investigators. Even if he had left evidence on his victim, he knew they didn't have the most important piece. Laura's body was still locked in the trunk of his car.
0: Steven's thinking was spot on. Following the second interview, there was little left law enforcement could do. They had no conclusive evidence to make an arrest, and the case languished for months.
1: The lack of progress frustrated Laura's loved ones. They were certain that Stephen was dangerous, yet he was allowed to walk the streets a free man. But one of Laura's friends was determined to find some measure of justice.
0: In April of 2014, an anonymous person placed a classified ad in the West Allis newspaper. The ad read, Stephen Mark Zelich is a sadist who has enslaved a petite female named Laura Jean Simonson. The police have not been able to locate where Stephen has Laura imprisoned. Please join our effort to find and free Laura Simonson.
1: The classified posted Steven's personal details, including his email address and cell phone number. It also warned anyone browsing BDSM websites to be on the lookout for the username Mr.
0: Handcuffs. But it seems not everyone saw the warning. By the summer of 2014, Stephen was communicating with a new woman online, someone with the username Petra. They hadn't been chatting for very long, but Stephen was already sharing his fantasies with her. He told Petra that he was searching for a, quote, torture slave with no limits, no safe words, no possible way out.
1: Just like Jenny Gomez and Laura Simonson, Petra seemed intrigued by the idea and Stephen couldn't wait to meet
2: her in person.
0: Coming up, Stephen scrambles to cover up his crimes.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some,
0: Now, back to the story.
1: 52-year-old Stephen Selich had a disturbing, deadly habit of seducing vulnerable women on BDSM websites. In the summer of 2014, he started chatting with a user named Petra, asking her to come live with him as his permanent slave.
0: Stephen had made the same offer to 19-year-old Jenny Gomez and 37-year-old Laura Simonson, both of whom he strangled to death with rope. Now their remains were stashed in his refrigerator and his car, where they were beginning to rot.
1: Around this time, a few neighbors in Stephen's building noticed a distinctive smell emanating from his apartment. One neighbor even remarked on an unusual number of flies and maggots.
0: Stephen had wanted to keep Jenny's corpse for as long as he could. However, her body had become so swollen from the decomposition process that Stephen couldn't even keep his refrigerator door shut. He had to get rid of her.
1: He placed her corpse back in the suitcase he'd first used to transport her. Then he loaded it in the trunk of his car, right next to Laura's remains. This at least kept the odors out of his apartment.
0: But unsurprisingly, another problem arose. His car now reeked of death. For a while, Stephen drove around with the bodies inside, spraying deodorizer whenever the smell became too overpowering. But as the weather grew warmer, Steven realized that the situation was untenable.
1: Around this time, Stephen worked as a security guard at a high-end building. Whenever he drove to work, his co-workers complained about the stench coming from his car, so much so that his boss ordered him to take care of it. Much to his displeasure, Stephen knew the time had come to relinquish his trophies.
0: On the night of June 4th, Stephen drove about 40 minutes southwest of his home to the quiet town of Geneva, Wisconsin. He pulled to a stop on North Como Road, choosing a stretch of pavement without any streetlights. Under
1: cover of darkness, Stephen took the two suitcases from his trunk and abandoned them in a ditch then he got back into his car and drove away when he returned home Stephen immediately resumed chatting with his new online target a woman with the username petra it seems that with his prized possessions gone he was eager to collect another
0: between one murder and the next serial killers typically experience a cooling off period that might last anywhere from several hours to several years the length of a killer's cooling off period may be determined by many factors But it's not unusual for these time intervals to shorten with each kill. Criminologist Arnon Edelstein posited a theory about such cooling off periods. In his 2019 paper published in the Journal of Psychology and Behavior Research, he wrote, as in other antisocial behaviors, the more a person engages in murder, the easier it becomes. Each subsequent act is easier, and the loss of inner conflict enables them to act more quickly than before. Stephen's initial cooling off period lasted about 14 months, but now, just seven months after Laura's death, Stephen was already looking for his next kill. On June 5th, he wrote in a message to Petra, I want you here in absolute captivity. I want to start planning that.
1: Meanwhile, the very same day he was exchanging messages with Petra, a highway worker in Geneva made a ghastly discovery.
0: As he was cutting the grass, he found the two suitcases next to the road, covered in flies. He wasn't sure what to make of the discovery, so he moved the bags to the shoulder of the road and continued his work.
1: Later that day, a passing motorist spotted the suitcases and stopped to investigate. When he approached them, the smell was unmistakable. It was the stench of death. The driver immediately called the Walworth County Sheriff's Office. When detectives arrived, they found the bodies of Laura Simonson and Jenny Gomez inside the bags.
0: A medical examiner determined that both women had been strangled to death and were able to identify Laura from a tattoo of her daughter's name.
1: However, identifying Jenny proved more difficult. She'd been dead for almost two years, and her remains had nearly mummified. But while they worked to identify her using dental records and help from the public, Geneva law enforcement officers had plenty of other evidence to work with.
0: The crime lab analyzed the suitcases and their contents, including all the items that had been affixed on the bodies. When the corpses were discovered, Laura still had the ball gag lodged in her mouth, and Jenny's hands were tied behind her back with rope.
1: That rope led to a breakthrough. Investigators found DNA trapped within the knot, and it was a match for Stephen Zelich.
0: On June 25, 2014, Walworth County authorities drove to West Allis to confront Stephen at work. As the officers approached him, he was subdued and cooperative. He even agreed to answer their questions. It's possible that he thought his compliance would prove his innocence.
1: However, once inside the interrogation room, detectives informed Stephen that he wouldn't be returning to work anytime soon. They'd already found his DNA and the two bodies discovered in Geneva.
0: Stephen knew the jig was up. As a former police officer, he understood how the justice system worked and changed his entire approach. He reportedly spoke nonchalantly, as if he were discussing the weather, and told authorities everything how he'd killed the two women and hidden their remains.
1: Meanwhile, officers dressed in hazmat suits gathered around Stephen's apartment building and broke down his door with a battering ram.
0: Stephen's neighbors watched stunned as investigators spent hours removing potential evidence from his apartment, including the refrigerator.
1: As officers built their case, Stephen worked on establishing his defense, though he continued to cooperate with interrogators and answer their questions. Though he freely admitted that he'd killed Jenny and Laura, he described the deaths as unintentional.
0: He calmly told the Walworth officers that he had engaged in consensual BDSM breath play with the two women. But in a state of arousal and excitement, he'd gone too far and lost control. According to Stephen, it was all a horrible accident, not premeditated murder.
1: However, when investigators asked why Laura's murder followed the exact same pattern as Jenny's, he didn't have a plausible explanation. He told officers he must have subconsciously repeated his behavior and denied ever planning it out. He also couldn't explain why he didn't try to call for help or administer first aid, nor could he justify why he'd kept their remains for so long.
0: Although Stephen attempted to take control of the interrogation, his story simply didn't add up. In the end, he faced several charges, including first-degree murder and two counts of hiding a corpse.
1: In January of 2016, he reached a deal with prosecutors, pleading guilty to first-degree reckless homicide for Jenny's death. In exchange, he was sentenced to 35 years in prison. A year later, he pled guilty to second-degree murder in Laura Simonson's death and was given an additional 25-year term to serve immediately after the first.
0: Then, in October of 2017, he received a final 10-year sentence for the crime of hiding the bodies. Altogether, he was to spend 70 years behind bars.
1: However, after his sentencing, Stephen attempted to withdraw his guilty plea, claiming ineffective assistance of counsel. His case is currently pending in the courts.
0: If Stephen is able to prove his counsel was ineffective, he may be allowed to withdraw his plea and stand trial for his crimes. In the meantime, he remains a prisoner at the Dodge Correctional Institution in Wappen, Wisconsin, where he has forfeited all control over his own life. To quote Mr. Handcuffs, he's experiencing permanent confinement with no expectation of release.
1: Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with a new episode.
0: You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time.
1: Have a killer week.
0: Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Joel Callen and Jane O. Fact checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.